Welcome to Episcopal Priest Explains. I'm Kyle Martindale, your resident Episcopal priest, and today we'll be concluding our conversation with Bishop Dion Johnson, the Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Missouri, on Juneteenth and racial reconciliation in the Episcopal Church. We're going to join back in right where we left off last week, so stick around and welcome again to Episcopal Priest Explains. It's Episcopal Priest Explains. I might not know much about much, but I'm here to talk about stuff. For when your friends ask you questions and you want to show off, the first five minutes likely aren't enough. Because I'm going to be wrong, and I'll ask someone smarter. So that first five minutes are more just like a starter. So you can stick around and hear from the experts, because there's more to know from Episcopal Priest Explains. It's... Episcopal Priest Explains. And we've already touched on this a little bit because we know that some dioceses, including uh, New York, along with Virginia Seminary that I brought up earlier, and probably many others, you said many dioceses are doing this, have begun the deep work of not just exploring those um, flawed histories. Uh, and, and by that, I mean there's flaws in history, but also flaws mm-hmm. with how we're telling the history. Yeah. Uh, with regards to enslaved peoples, but also that that of financial reparations to descendants and communities and the building up of uh, you were mentioning the underserved communities that have been underfunded in churches as well. And yeah. what are your thoughts on how works such as these can both build up communities and pull us as a people towards fuller reconciliation as as people? Well, I, I'm a proponent of this work of, rec, rec, of um, reparations and reconciliation. Um, and as I said, we saw last year uh, a whole host of dioceses either begin some kind of reparation fund or find new ways to, to leverage funds that they had towards reparations. My, my only fear in some of that is that it becomes a one and done. Mm-hmm. That we say, okay, we have we've we've set aside a million dollars to help you know predominantly black congregations. We're good, right? You know, it's it's easy to just say, well, we'll write a check and throw money at it, and you know, act like the problem has gone away. Um, and I, having a financial support is is wonderful, and it's a great thing. But true reconciliation is us bridging a gap together. Mm-hmm that it's not just about trying to use finances as a way of um, appeasing perhaps guilt from what has happened in the past, but we, we have to see that financial contribution as a way of building bridges. That yeah. it's it, it's not just, okay, we're going to write St. Swithin's African church a, a check, <laughs> um, but we're going to figure ways that we can engage St. Swithin's with the rest of the diocese, that we can tell their story with the rest of the diocese, that we can that we can claim St. Swithin's history as of the whole history of the diocese. Um, so, I mean, it's for, for me, I see re- um, reparations and reconciliation as much more about creating and building partnerships and building bridges, because it, it can't just be um, what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. You know, right. we just okay, we wrote a check, we gave some money, we're good. We can we can go on as as things as if things were any, weren't any different, um, when we know that there's still bias built into the systems of um, training and raising up leadership. Right. 
when we know that there's still bias and racism in how we call and deploy clergy of color. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that there's still injustices that happen for women and especially women of color in the church. So um, just saying that we're going to put money behind it and not do the hard work of kind of undoing some of what's already accumulated in the system is a means of cheap grace. If you ask me. Thank you. I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more that it, it's, I think as our default, not just as the church, I'm not, you know, I love the church. We wouldn't be in it, you and I, if we didn't think that, (laughs) however imperfect it may be that we can grow it towards more perfection. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, I think that as people, it's our default sometimes to just want it, have it done with. Yeah, uh, because that's the easier thing. the The work of reconciliation, though, is not an easy work. I, and and if you're in my congregation, I apologize, kind of, because you hear me say shuv a lot, the the Hebrew word for for <laughs> repentance, and it's like a returning, and it's a physical, it's an action verb, and that's what reconciliation is. It's not this quick, easy thing. It's got to be this hard work and this yeah. partnered work. It's not not something we can do by ourselves. It's an act of, as the Bishop said earlier, community, uh, as, as well. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a slow roasted brisket, not a quick, um, fast food burger. Oh, Bishop. Now you're making me hungry. <laughs> uh, but uh, just so y'all who are listening know, uh, a minute ago when when the bishop was saying write the check, he was he was doing the symbolic washing of hands because so often we just, <laughs> as Pilate did, you know, we 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 say, okay, I'm out, I'm done. This I've done I'm what done I now. needed to do. I don't need to do anything else, and I don't want to hear about it ever again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and also so you know that uh, Saint Swithin's. Well, I think there might be a couple. Saint Swithin's is a placeholder name that we all use in the church. I think we all learn it in seminary and just keep it with yes. us forever. Uh, when we're doing, there, there, there are a couple thousand Saint Swithin's running around out there. Yes, with with baptism certificates and 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 all sorts of whatever you practice in liturgy class. So. Just so you know, he's not speaking about a particular community when he says St. Swithin's. Although we do want to recognize their histories when there are St. Swithin's, as as the bishop said. (laughs) What do you see, Bishop, as the major movements in the church and broader society that led to the movements towards broad racial reconciliation? uh, And what do you think their effect on the church was and is? Hmm. Well, I honestly think 2020 was a confluence moment for the church. Um, And confluence, what I mean by that is a coming together where two things came together at the right time for us to step into this moment. Now, if we were, I I honestly believe if we weren't in the time of pandemic and hadn't had the gruesome murder of George Floyd be televised, I am not sure if we would have engaged in this hard work. I think George Floyd's murder was a confluence, was a turning point where we recognize, where we realize, you know, we've been hearing names like you know, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, or Michael Brown here in Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd heard those, and you know, we saw protests and we saw local things, and you know, we turned on the TV or we went on social media, and it was like, oh, okay, you know, what can I do? Mm-hmm. I think what happened in 2020 was that we finally had had enough when we actually saw what I call a public lynching on TV. Right. 
Um, and you couple that with a pandemic where everybody is at home and you didn't you didn't have a choice but to process it. And as a church, we didn't have a choice. But we couldn't look away mm-hmm. is pretty much what I was saying. And we didn't have a choice but to um, engage with this. And so as a church, I think what we had to what what we faced was a moment of do we lean into this moment or do we retreat? Do we continue to look towards relevance or do we pull back and kind of stay behind our stained glass windows and, and, and walls? Um, and I am, I am happy that most of the church has said, no, we are going to step out of our stained glass window rooms and engage the world once again. Um, because we couldn't be in those stained glass windows rooms yep. anyway. We, we weren't there anyway. Church. We were all sitting um, at home watching this lynching happen with everybody exactly. else around the world. And so we, we didn't have a choice but to engage. And I, I am a firm believer, and the folks in the Diocese of Missouri will tell you that I will, I, I have said the Episcopal Church is made for this moment. We know what reconciliation looks like. We know what truth-telling looks like. We know what it means to do the hard work of, of telling the truth in love. Mm-hmm. We know what it means to have those hard conversations with people who disagree with us and still maintain relationship. Um, and so I will stand by that the Episcopal Church is made for this moment. And we are uniquely positioned to lead not just the church, but our world into something different. Because we know how to have hard conversations. We know how to disagree. I mean, mm-hmm. we know how to have a good church fight mm-hmm. <laughs> and still manage to stay together after that church fight. Right. So um, I think that we are very much positioned as the church to show the world what it means to be different. Um, but it also what it means to be reconciled one to another because we've been doing that work. Right. And, and for so long, the, the cry was when is enough enough or how long is too long? These kinds of things. And, and, and you, you talked about hearing all these names and, and, and years years and they go back to Emmett Till and they go back beyond mm-hmm. that and they go back and back and back. And, yeah. and it's not like this is a new thing. It's not like Michael Brown Jr. in Ferguson in 2014 was the first person uh, no. of color to be killed by a police officer. I mean, the, our, our system in this country is, uh, of policing is built around slave catching. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the precursor to modern policing and, that's something we haven't as a people fully recognized and named and, and I don't think that most or... of the, I don't think most Americans, in fact, most Episcopalians even know that policing began as a way of the slave catching. Mm. Or our, our modern understanding of policing became came grew out of trying to recapture former enslaved folks who ran away. Yeah. Um, and that's I mean, again, that's that's a part of telling the whole story. And that, and maybe, maybe I'll have you back sometime and we'll just talk about that for the whole time. Cause I think that's a whole, <laughs> whole thing in and of itself. We'll go deeper into the history next time. Uh, yeah. and, and maybe you'll, maybe you'll be willing to rejoin me and, and, and continue naming these, these stories. Well, I'm, I'm a history buff, so I can talk history from now to thy kingdom come. <laughs> I, I think that that can be dangerous then because because oh, yes. that sounds like a lot of fun to sit there and talk the talk the history. So, you know, you heard it here first, folks. He's an early adopter and maybe we'll have him back uh, and, <laughs> and talk about the history.
But speaking of these moments and events, and you've named several of them, and, and you named uh, Ferguson as well, just so people listening know that Bishop Johnson is the Bishop of Missouri, which is the eastern part of the state of Missouri and includes Ferguson, of course, because that's just outside of St. Louis, where Michael Brown Jr. was killed by Darren Wilson in 2014. What has that particular moment, and then also, I know, because you've just come into the diocese in the last couple years, but that moment and all the shootings and, and let's just call them what they are, lynchings, prior and since, meant for communities of faith in the area that is specifically where they've happened and had these kind of spillover moments because they've happened everywhere, but not every moment has been these spillover moments when it becomes national and international conversation. And how does that affect your role as Bishop in the diocese in terms of preaching and teaching and of reconciliation? Well, it, it means that again, I have to be kind of the chief namer of things so being able to, to name what's happened in Ferguson, being, I mean, I, I wasn't here um, in 2014. I've only been the bishop since June 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being able as the bishop to say, we need to name these places um, or being able to say um, that this is, that we, we, we have a long history of doing this Um and being able to allow people the space who may not have heard it or may not know what's going on um, to, I don't want to say catch up, but to, to get to a place where they know that this is a part of the history of who we are. You know, the, right. the Diocese of Missouri is not divorced from the events in Ferguson. Um, quite a few of the clergy here in this diocese marched on the streets Um, Our churches in the Diocese of Missouri were safe spaces for the protesters Mm -hmm. um, to gather when when they were being tear gassed by the police. Um, I have and I will continue to tell those stories. Um, The clergy in this diocese will continue to tell the stories of where they were and how they stepped into that moment. Um, Because I think in many ways that was a church offering its best at a time that was difficult. And sometimes that is all you can do. I mean, my grandmother used to say, the best thing that you can do is get up, dress up, and show up. Um, And a lot of our clergy were able to just get up, dress up, and put on a collar and show up. um, And that made a difference. Um, They're here in in St. Louis. um, Anytime that there is a major protest, the clergy are always the front line. And that came out of, of Ferguson. No, the clergy with their collars, locked arms, are always the front line of the protest because people need to people see the church as kind of stepping into the breach and being the bridge between um, those in power and those who don't have who feel as though they don't have any power. Right. Well, and um, it's this act of bodily putting not not bodily and spiritually putting yourself in between danger and the flock. Exactly. So as I said, it's a big part of it is making sure that we name um, and that we are out there that, you know, we're, we're, we're not just saying, Oh, look, we're the church. We, we gather for worship, but we are, we're out there with the folks. Um, Mm -hmm. When I first got here before I was even consecrated Bishop, when I was still the Bishop elect, um, I went to a couple of the George Floyd um, 
protests that were happening here around justice and whatnot in the city of um, St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Because to me, you know, we pray with our feet. So we we need to be out on the streets. Um, The other part of it is, is like you were, we were talking about earlier, recognizing that this is not new. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the stories I always tell is the story of Cleo Wright. Cleo Wright was the last official lynching quote unquote um, in the United States and it happened here in the Diocese of Missouri mm. in a town called Sykeston. Um, we have a par- a church that is down the street from where that lynching actually took place. And because the efforts of the priest that's at that parish right now, um, Sykeston is going to put up a memorial to Cleo Wright because nothing had ever been put up to, remo- mm. to memorialize his him being lynched in that town. Yeah. So the, the church the church can do this work. <laughs> And that goes back to what the bishop was talking about earlier, too. Uh, or if I if this is split and it's last week, whatever, however it was in the conversation, but the the naming and then the the rest- restoration of dignity as part of mm-hmm. reconciliation, because if there's not a recognition of what happened to Cleo Wright, then you can't move on. Right, you are you are stuck in that place. <laughs> And stuck with that false narrative of the history as well, uh, because yeah. that's the only one that's been on offer. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you're either stuck with that as as the accepted history, which does a disservice, or if you're not in a place of privilege where you can ignore the, the deeper history, you're stuck with people not recognizing your history as history at all. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again. Um, and we we've been talking about these moments of progress and, and these moments of tough work for reconciliation and in both church and society. Uh, and I think it's also, we, we've, we know that not everything has been positive. We've been talking about that, but could you share with us what you think is one of the most pressing challenges facing communities of color and faith with regards to progress, justice, and reconciliation today? Well, I I think one of the biggest challenges, especially for communities of faith that are made up of people of color, um, are people who mean well, but do damage by both their actions and their, I mean, there's, there are always people who want to come in and explain to people of color what they need. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Um, And they're well-meaning but the reality is the best thing that most folks that want to be helpful to communities of color, um, especially in the church, is to just go listen. To just go ask the question, how, what do you need for us to do alongside you? Because more often than not, communities of color don't want a savior. Mm-hmm. You know, we already got one of those, Jesus. Yep. <laughs> I don't think we're we're good on the savior front. A, a savior um, of color, also by the a way. A savior of color, by the way. <laughs> um, but we, we we're good on the savior front. Um, but what what most communities of color want um, is someone to actually hear their story, at, or to ask the question: What do you de- what, what can we be helpful with in this moment? Mm. And sometimes that helpfulness is just 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 step out of the way, um, which is something sometimes we don't want to hear. But sometimes the best way to be helpful is to get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but but just being at, just asking some communities of color what they need. I mean, the reality is I sit on the advisory board to the Office of Black Ministries in the Episcopal Church. 
about 70% of the black congregations across this Episcopal church are in decline. Mm. 70%. Wow. Which means that we are losing black traditional black communities of color at an alarming rate. We're, and I think something like 70 or 80% of them can't afford a part-time clergy person. Wow. Um, so, I mean, to me, that's a staggering statistic right. that I'm a, more than a majority of the communities of color that make up the Episcopal church can't afford a priest um, or can't afford to have a part-time priest. Um, and so th- that's a big challenge. And so, you know, being able to, to how, how do we raise up and support these small, traditionally black congregations um, in a way that allows them to have a future. Right. Um, that's a, that's a continued struggle. Um, but I think the, the, the like to, to, to answer the question around, you know, what are some of the negatives? Some of the negatives are going in and assuming what people need or want. Mm-hmm. It's, I call it warmth over colonialism. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you go in and go like, Oh, well you just need, you know, you need some help with your building. You need a Sunday school program and you'll be fine. But that's not what the community needs. Right. And you you say those two things and I'm just, you know, I'm like, that that's how I've always defined mo- most mission trips that churches do. Not all, mm-hmm. but most mission trips, uh, you know, you, you show up, you, you slap a fresh coat of paint on a church and, and you mm-hmm. do vacation Bible school for a few days and you call it good. Yep. And you say, oh, look, we have done a wonderful job with those folks. And the second that you leave, they kind of probably go, well, we didn't really need that painted. We needed this building over here built, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, and, and nobody ever asked. Uh, Yeah. So So just asking the question a lot of the times, I mean, uh, one of the things that I have prided myself on for most of my ordained ministry is just asking questions. Um, I always ask, you know, I wonder what, or I ask, you know, how can it, how can we be helpful? And I'm often surprised at what people will tell you they need compared to what you think they need. Mm-hmm. Yep. The an- answer to the question and there's where the active listening comes in because mm-hmm. the answer to the question, sometimes if you've already got in your head what you think the answer is going to be, you stick with that even if somebody's mm-hmm. told you something completely different about what they need. And yeah. and you need to – if you need to ask questions, keep asking the questions because that's how you get to what's actually going to be helpful to a community. Exactly. And to an individual for that matter. That, that – that mantra of asking the question and then just listening works when you're, uh, I, I used to serve uh, in a community serving a homeless population. And, and the question can't be, it's not a blanket answer and you can't take a blanket answer into there and, a, or blanket help into any community or to any person. Yeah. So thank you. One size fits all does not fit. <laughs> right. You know, you're you're telling me I'm six seven. One size fits all has never fit me. So I, I'll pray for you the next time you're on an airplane. <laughs> Thank you. Yep, here in about three weeks. So I appreciate the prayers, Bishop. Uh, one thing I always like to ask when I'm talking with someone is, and a subject that's active and has real world challenges and debate is the fact that we often, and, and we've talked about this some, but we hit this 
artificial capacity for stress or capacity to be challenged? And what do you see as the moment when many people in our church and in the broader sense, and we we may be, I think, as you brought up George Floyd, maybe pulled violently past those those gaps where we can't talk about things. But what do you think were the moments where people point to and try to act like everything's okay and that we don't have to talk about it anymore? Yeah. Well, I mean, George Floyd is certainly one of them. You know, there. If you if you spend enough time online, you'll see the folks who just don't even want to have that conversation. Right. Um, but but we see that happening over and over again when it comes to having to deal with hard things. Um, I mean, you name it. I mean, the the, the controversy over. Um, um, I'm blanking on her name. The tennis player who who pulled out because she wanted to take care of her mental health. Um, right. Oh goodness. Now, now I'm going to have to look it up while we're talking. You keep going, <laughs> but, and I'll I'll have a name for you in a minute. But I mean, but but it, it, it's stuff like that, you know, the the folks who don't who really don't want to have who don't want to talk about things because it means that you're going to shatter the illusion that has been created around the myth of what America is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so anything that becomes a threat to that myth we shy away from, I mean, and the church does the same thing, you know, anything that, that shatters or seeks to, you know, more fully define who the church is and its role in all of this stuff. You know, there are folks who will always push back and act like, okay, nope, we, we, we can't talk about that because it's going to divide people. Um, You know, I'm a member of the union of black Episcopalians and I've had people come up to me before I was a Bishop and say, well, you know, well, well, why do, why do black people need to have their own space for, um, for something like, like, why, why do you have to have a UBE? You know, shouldn't, shouldn't we all be just one Episcopal church? Mm. Well, I can answer that question. I mean, it's a really, really good question to try to answer in about an hour. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but the short answer is because not every space is a safe space. Right. And until we can come up with a church where everyone is, feels safe being who they are, you know, we still need things like women's gatherings. We still need things like LGBTQ plus gatherings. We still need things like, you know, Union of Black Episcopalians and whatnot. Because if, if, if we don't have those spaces where we're allowed to be who you are um, and not have to, 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 to conform with what the wider church says, um, we haven't arrived yet. <laughs> right. You know, there, there's still work to do. And just just to go back, it's Naomi Osaka was the tennis is the tennis player who needed yes, to step Osaka, back. Yep. Uh, but then you also look at Shikari Richardson, who it was a um, wasn't it a reporter that asked the question about her mom's death, and that's how she found out her mom had died. Yeah. Uh, and so just the irresponsibility with how we do that and ask questions and make spaces not safe uh, and mm-hmm. and. You know, spaces, it'd be wonderful if we could all be in a room and and everybody would actually be able to share and feel like they're not going to be. But the very act of asking, why do you have to have that, is why it's not a safe space. That answers the question (laughs) for you. is Precisely. (laughs) We need a UBE because you're asking me why we need a UBE. (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, like I said, I, I... I, I can't say that I can point to one turning point, mm-hmm. but I think that there are, I mean, there have been turning points along the way. 
I think George Floyd has been the most recent, you know, Breonna Taylor. Um, I mean, we've had several different things. I mean, the election of Obama, you know, mm-hmm. we all, everybody, or a majority of the culture thought, oh, you know, well, we're post-race now. We have a, a, a president who was African-American and look what happened. You know, we saw a significant rise in hate groups during his tenure. Right. And one of the leaders who who tried to discredit him and make it seem like he w- shouldn't be able to have the job was then elected as the guy to follow him. Exactly. Uh-huh. So, I mean, we, 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 we've seen these turning points um, and the places where people have tried to turn back time or turn away from what's going on. Right. Thank you. What is the one thing you think everyone in the Episcopal church and, uh, you know, on an individual level uh, and just really anyone can and ought to do in order to both name and acknowledge the imperfect past and imperfect present and go about bringing in a brighter future for racial reconciliation as one people? I think the one thing that as Episcopalians that we can do, no matter what your color, no matter your background or your culture, is just tell sto- tell your story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we follow we follow Jesus who who listened to people's story. You know, we, we forget that the gospel is a bunch of folks telling their story. You know, when he encountered the woman at the well, you know, Jesus wasn't just bumping into some woman. Mm-hmm. You know, he knew his her story. Like, oh, I know you. You've had seven husbands. You know, he 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 heard her story. You know, her her response to him was when she when she ran back and told everybody, like he knew everything about me. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't get to know everything about somebody if you don't listen to them, right? If you don't listen to their stories, and I think that that's the best that we can offer. That we can listen to each other's story. You know, that we can hear and walk in compassion with the other person's struggle, you know, if you are a congregation that is predominantly white, go spend some time in a Latin congregation and just hear the stories of the people there. Mm -hmm. Go listen to the stories of your African-American neighbors, you know, tell them your stories. Um, I think that when we tell stories, when we share stories, we find places that we can connect. Um, And then it doesn't become just my story. It doesn't become your story. It becomes our collective story. Wonderful. Thank you. And, and just the, the power you talked of the woman at the well and the, the truly powerful thing for her was he knew my story and, Mm -hmm. and just the miraculous thing it is to know each other's stories and better know each other because of it. And, and we're transformed, like you said, Bishop, from a, an individual with just one story to a people with a story that we can tell together. Exactly. And that, I mean, that is the gospel. That right. is the good news. The good news is our story connecting with the story of Jesus. Yeah. And the good news is it changed, you know, it, it has the power to change us all. So, you know, mm-hmm. the, us being imperfect, nobody in the, in the, not any of the disciples, not any of the people that Jesus came across, nobody yeah. was perfect in any of those stories, but they were transformed oh. by the, their contact with each other and with Jesus. Well, I mean, think about who Jesus called. I mean, he did not call the cream of the crop to be the apostles and followers. Right. I mean, I am still convinced that the reason why Jesus called Peter the rock is because his head was as dense as a rock. I, I say that all the time. 
<laughs> so I mean, he sank Jesus like called... a rock too when he when he tried to it... walk on water. Exactly. I mean, Jesus called a bunch of really flawed you know, people to be his followers. And look, <laughs> the church took off with a bunch of people who didn't get it most of the time. So how much more can God work through us? Right. Well, thank you. Before we close, I want to ask what your biggest joys and challenges are as a priest and now a bishop in the church? Well, I can say my biggest joy are the people. That's always, I mean, I'm, I'm an extrovert, so I love people to begin with, but, um, and I love stories. So one of the biggest things that I love is just hearing and being with people in their stories and where they are um, and being able to walk that journey with them um, to see, to see the excitement of faith reignited um, or to hear, to see people be recognized and be given the dignity that they've been looking for. And that's one of the joys that I've experienced now as being a bishop, just going around and just asking people like, just tell me your story. Mm -hmm. And most of the time they're surprised that I'm even asking, <laughs> um, or, you know, I'll get like, do you, do you really want to, you really want to hear about me? I'm like, yeah, I really want to hear your story. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I have heard so many wonderful stories of how the church has take, taken care of or walked with somebody in some of the darkest things in their lives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these are the stories that I, I, I keep saying to folks, go tell your story because that's the gospel. Mm -hmm. you know, that's evangelism. Just go tell your story that, you know, I had one lady um, who told me about, you know, she came to the church because her mother had been in the church and she, you know, she wanted nothing to do with the church. And when her mother died, the church came to her house and brought her food. They made sure that she had that. They took care of her, like the lawn. I mean, they came and took care of her. Mm -hmm. And she had never experienced a community who would take care of something in the midst of grief. Yeah. And so she decided to go back to church um, because people were showing her what hospitality looks like. Right. And, and like your grandmother said, and like you said earlier, a lot of it's about showing up, Yep. showing up Just for show one up. another, you know, and, and, oh, you need your lawn mowed. That's not what I planned, but that's what I'm going to do. Cause that's, what's exactly. going to help you get through the day. And, Exactly. So I, I, I have loved, loved, loved just hearing people tell their stories. And, and what's the greatest challenge that you've experienced in ministry? Um, I think the greatest challenge, um, at least for me now as a bishop, is not being able to be in a room with people. We're beginning mm -hmm. to do that a little bit more out of pandemic. Um, but there's something about being in, being able to be in a room and look someone in the eye mm -hmm. or, you know, to reach out if they're in pain, to put a hand on the shoulder or something like that, that, you know, we, we are built for sacred touch. Mm -hmm. You know, think of all of our sacraments, all of our sacraments require some kind of touch. Right. And so it is really hard to not be able to, you know, to touch a shoulder, to, to, to just sit next to someone and just have your presence be there. Right. Right. That it has been a challenge, I think, for for all of us in, you know, not just clergy, but everyone. But for us clergy, know that we miss you yeah. at least equally to what you miss us. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we, we are incarnational after all. We are an art incarnational faith. Right. So there is some, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Zoom and I love all the online stuff because it's a way of connecting. But at the end of the day, we are still incarnational. We need people. <laughs> and we're we're called we're we're told that one day we'll know God as God has known us and look not through a you know not through the haze but 
but upon God and and you know when I now that I get to visit people and I've spent the, a, a few days this week visiting someone in the hospital who um, has now passed and was with there with with family and everything and just the the power to see each other's faces yeah. to gaze upon one another and to reach out and touch one another in prayer and mm-hmm. in compassion. Um, I, I really do think the the showing up and, and the being able to reach out and, and touch is it's gospel. It's life changing. It's soul changing. Uh, and it's transformational. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us while you're here today or <laughs> any question that you wish I asked you or that other people ask you, but you don't get to share? Um, well, see, the, the question that I always that I ask people that nobody ever asked me is what is it that makes your heart sing? Um, and for me, sometimes it's just just quiet, just sitting. I mean, I'm an extrovert, but sometimes in the morning, I just love to sit outside and in the in the backyard not doesn't matter the season and watch my chickens run around the backyard and just listen to nature wake up Mm. that just makes my heart sing that it's kind of like okay god is good and this is going to be a good day um so you know that's the one question that i love to ask people what is it that makes your heart sing that's beautiful and and for those of you listening, I saw on the Bishop's Facebook uh, last week, I think he had three different colored eggs that you know, <laughs> yes. different chickens laid them and, and, he said, yep. and they were all beautiful and delicious. They uh, were delicious. <laughs> and, and, you know, if we can just, uh, I, I think that the difference in each other, if we can recognize that and the beauty of it and the beauty of each other, not just and outside. the ordinariness. Yes. I mean, I, I often forget, people forget that God uses the ordinary, mm-hmm. not the extra. God uses the ordinary to do extraordinary things. Right. The, the beauty in the eggs, the beauty in how a sunflower can stay up without falling over. That's one that gets me every time. But uh. Exactly. A bumblebee. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> How does that even stay up? How is that possible? <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for joining me for this chat today and blessings as you continue in your wonderful ministry in the Episcopal Diocese of Missouri as both Bishop and Chief Namer of Things, as you said <laughs> earlier. And thank you all for joining us today, and I hope you'll come back for more great conversations. Don't forget to follow Episcopal Priest Explains wherever you listen to podcasts so you can get notified of our next episode or bookmark the show. You can join the conversation on the official Facebook page, follow on Twitter, or even help build up the official Discord channel. In the coming weeks, I'll be speaking with Bishop Alan Shin of the Diocese of New York and Bishop Craig Loya of the Diocese of Minnesota. I'm Kyle Martindale, and as always, all are welcome at Episcopal Priest Explains.